encourage uh, the folks you towards the back to come to come forward if you think that we can't see you back there. We totally can. <laughs> Don't be shy. Um, so come on up front. Um, so a brief in introductions to our panelists, and for our panelists, feel free to jump in and give us sort of a more uh, fulsome introduction to yourself. Uh, sitting to my immediate left is Jenny Kiley. She's an attorney in the in the cannabis space and from Oregon. Hello, hello, Jenny. Thanks for having me. <laughs> to her immediate left is Jonathan Havens. He's an attorney in D.C. in Maryland. Hello, Jonathan. Hey, everyone. And then over here on my right is Brandon Palma. He's a graphic designer from Seattle and uh, works at a full-service firm. What's your firm called? Yes, I'm founder of Eighth Day Create and been involved with uh, the plant since 2011. It's the original art director and creator of Dope Magazine. And now being full-fledged to come here and speak about CBD. So this is just a brief uh, collaborative storytelling adventure where we're going to go through the uh, history of hemp in America with you guys. Um, some of y'all might be familiar with the um, various uh, high points of the history lesson that, we're, that we're, we're laying out. And as we do, feel free to jump in, raise your hand, uh, collaborate and share. This is an uh, interactive storytelling experience uh, that you're certainly welcome to be a part of. Um, my experience as a journalist and the author of a book called The Cornbread Mafia is that I've got some deep history experience working on uh, the history of the cannabis plant sort of before it was uh, popular in the 20th century. My show and tell thing for today is this uh, Harlow Giles Unger biography of Henry Clay that seems super boring and believe me it is. Um, but in it is some fascinating details about how Henry Clay was a pioneer in the hemp industry in the early 19th century in America. And really, uh, the hemp industry in Kentucky owes practically everything to Henry Clay, who was both um, growing hemp at his uh, plantation in Lexington called Ashland, while also being the Speaker of the House in Washington, D.C. And as Speaker of the House, he uh, protected the hemp plant um, in Kentucky and America by imposing tariffs against uh, uh, foreign made um, uh, foreign made rope and foreign foreign grown hemp. Um, what actually uh, started the Kentucky and the American hemp industry is the Thomas Jefferson led embargo of European goods in 1809 um, when um, England and France were at war with each other and America didn't want to supply either France or England uh, with war supplies, so, we, uh, so Thomas Jefferson imposed an embargo and that forced uh, American suppliers to create American products that had previously been imported from Europe and that included rope and that came from hemp and that's when Kentucky really took a foothold in this industry. Uh, hemp is not native to, to the New World. It was first brought to uh, Brazil by the Portuguese and then uh, to Nova Scotia, Newfoundland by the French. The first crop in Kentucky was planted in 1775 when Kentucky was a county of the colony of Maryland. Uh, so it was a, a major staple crop of Kentucky when Kentucky became a state. Um, as we turn into the 20th century, um, uh, Kentucky is a dominant producer of hemp. Um, creating as much as 75% of the hemp consumed in America. Really the only other place in America that was competing, that was competitive with Kentucky hemp production was Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin was earlier to uh, impose some um, modernization uh, in the harvesting methods of hemp uh, in that state. So it made them competitive with, uh, with Kentucky's naturally uh, great environment for growing the plant. 
but then when we get into the 20th century, of course, this stuff gets really political uh, and difficult and convoluted and shrouded in mystery and conspiracy. Um, and that's why our great panel here is here to sort of explain how we got from a great staple crop of the 19th century to something that was demonized for most of the 20th century. And now here we are in the 21st century talking about it as a business opportunity for all of us today. So uh, Jenny, will you sort of catch us up from how we get out of the 19th century into the 20th century? And then when does this sort of really get political in the 1930s? Uh, what, what starts to happen? Yeah, so a lot of uh, legislation occurred in the 30s. And prior to that, there was an anti-cannabis sentiment um, for a number of reasons. I would say culturally, you know, through colonialism, cannabis was used for industrial purposes with sort of general migration and the Mexican Revolution and immigration because of agriculture and mining opportunities here. Um, the U.S. saw cannabis used in a different way for more so for medicinal purposes and for mood-altering purposes. And so I think culturally it was viewed um, differently by Puritans, essentially. So that sentiment brought us through to the 30s in which um, there is essentially an effect of a prohibition on cannabis. And why is that? And it was a slow build, in fact. So for example, the predecessor to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, which Jonathan's gonna cover, is the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1904, which didn't prohibit cannabis. Um, but it essentially said if cannabis is an ingredient in a food product or um, a drug or medicinal item, it needed to be prominently labeled. And also in the most of us know about the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, which essentially um, outlawed cannabis. There's a similar law that was passed in 1914, the um, Harrison Anti-Narcotics Act. And that was a tax on opiates and cocaine. And actually prior drafts of that bill included cannabis, but it didn't make it into the final law um, because the medical community objected to it. And so the sort of undercurrents were there, and it's worth noting probably as well, um, the Great Depression occurred and started in 29, and unemployment soared by the early 30s, 31, 32, and um, that economic um, and limited resources added to the xenophobia generally, added to the anti-cannabis sentiment. And so, and, and that's yes. when, if, sorry about Yes, please jump in. Uh, my microphone on, is, was far away. Um, that's when cannabis and hemp starts being referred to publicly as marijuana, right, as, as a sort of xenophobia, anti-Mexican attitude in, in, a, in a tight uh, working climate in the Depression. It's when marijuana becomes a prominent term of use. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, for the most part, cannabis was referred to as cannabis or cannabis sativa, cannabis indica. And, um, but in the 1937 Tax Act, the term marijuana is used. And, um, and that, I think, um, Brandon has some. So before I get there, actually, in the 30s, one other noteworthy item is the predecessor to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, was an agency called um, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And the, chair, the first um, head of that agency was a man by the name of Harry Anslinger, and I think Brandon had some thoughts on that, but he's known to be the architect of cannabis prohibition. 
Absolutely, and thank you so much, Jenny. So <clears throat> there is one person in the 20th century that had the most impact on cannabis, on uh, this plant in general, uh, was this person, Henry J. Anslinger. He was appointed to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1930. And you want to talk about what kind of power this guy held. He literally put all this cannabis together to basically promote and save his job. In a sense, as, the, as a Federal Bureau of Narcotics, he was mostly going after smaller things. Now, when Prohibition ended, he was like, I'm going to be out of a job. Of course, what was the next big thing? So he went on a literal craze and push of why this plant is not what it is. And I mean, Justin, you know, we got today fake news and things like that. He pretty much fake news cannabis. He promoted it. He used all of his, gosh, propaganda machine and created movies. And so for me as a creative, really looking back on that and really seeing what he said, and I'm going to actually read a quote from him just to give you a mindset of what this certain individual really thought about this. And um, you know, this is directly his words, so please excuse any words that you may find that, um, you know, insulting. But he says, reefer makes darkies think that they're as good as white men. There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the US, and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others. So me being a person of color and a Filipino, he straight called me out. There is a ton of people in, that are Africans, and there are a ton of people who are Hispanics. But Filipinos, is a, that's a direct line in Asia. <laughs> so for me, as a young person growing up to that, I was like, what? Why? So for, forward for in the future, I basically, and what really propelled me was I really wanted to just undo all his negative work that he put out on this plant. And as Jenny mentioned, he really just really went in on it. I mean, this guy just, gosh, he mostly tar targeted culture. If, if anything about the legalities and you know, laws, I mean, when it comes down to it, it was racist, and it was straight about keeping people from evolving forward, and honestly, keeping the planetary consciousness from evolving forward. But I have to say, much appreciation to him, because if it weren't for his actions and his works, I don't think it would have propelled, or propelled today's people who are actually believing in this plant and actually know the truth to do and stand up every single day for what they do and to speak about it. And just in the previous panel where they're like, they banned this plant because there was not enough education. I think there is more than enough journalists, lawyers, educators, teachers, mothers, fathers, children who have experienced this. And not only from a CBD perspective, but full plant spectrum. I think there's definitely something going on and so, not to get a little bit more on that. Well, hold on. Let's. Yeah. I want to. I want to transition to our next history point. And I want to use the Philippines to do it. Right. So let's do it. So, uh, so thirty-seven, we banned uh, cannabis production in America, uh, even though the U.S. military, the U.S. Navy, is a primary consumer uh, of cannabis-related products and hemp rope for the Navy. Mm -hmm. uh, in December of nineteen forty-one, the day after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese. Um, 
attack the Philippines. And when they attack the Philippines, it eliminates the U.S. Navy supply of jute, which had been the substitute for hemp to supply the U.S. Navy with rope. And so as America entered World War II and as we were working to rebuild our Pacific fleet that was destroyed at Pearl Harbor, we also had to rebuild our supply of hemp for national security purposes. And that's where we get into this, uh, this period of time uh, known as Hemp for Victory, which Jenny also wants to speak on. So Jenny, like when you, when, when you want to take this away, feel free. But Hemp for Victory is a, um, is a movement that'll, that even after it was prohibited, the U.S. government went back to states like Kentucky and Wisconsin and said, please grow this for the war effort. So from 1941 to 46, or was it 45, um, uh, we were growing hemp for victory. And then, and then that was a, a four-year window that came and went, and we went back to prohibition. But Jenny, can you, can you take it away? Yeah, that's right. So in 1937, um, the Tax Act was implemented to cultivate. You had to go to the federal government and purchase a stamp a tax stamp, essentially get a permit, and they weren't being issued. That was lifted during World War II because, um, like Jim mentioned, we needed industrial hemp fiber to create rope and other supplies for the military. Um, and the USDA created an informational video. It's 14 minutes long. It's super interesting. You can watch it on YouTube. Um, and it was uh, intended to be shown to farmers. and it, talked about hemp history, how to grow it. Um, they show hemp seeds and what kind of soil it will thrive in. It shows um, how to harvest and break down the stalks into fiber and make it into rope. Um, and so it was an instructional video. Um, A lot of those scenes of the farms are shot in Kentucky and specifically Mercer County on the Kentucky River Bank at the Palisades. Like if you want to find where those, sh where those films were shot, we can probably nail it down to the exact location. Right, and the federal government also, I had an interesting stat, that at the time in, in the film it says, let's see, um, 19, it was one year apart, I believe 41 to 42, there was 14,000 acres of hemp cultivated, and in order to supply the military, they wanted to increase that to 300,000 acres within a one year period of time. And so the federal government went out and there were projects developed to um, develop processing facilities on farms, and, but the war ended quickly and then those projects weren't fully developed and hemp contracts were canceled. So what's interesting I think also about the film is that it wasn't well known until about the 80s. So around the 60s and the 70s, uh, marijuana activists heard of this film um, approached the federal government and asked to verify or obtain copies and the federal government either said we can't locate a copy or didn't respond at all, um, wouldn't admit that it existed. Um, some marijuana activists were able to locate a tape and donated it to the um, Library of Congress and then eventually the National uh, Archives Turn the turn the video over. Wasn't the video slated for destruction when when it was finally sort of clawed from? Uh, it's the, the version I heard was that it's, oh, it was, I, was just I, ready to be slated actually. for destruction. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but so one other interesting fact is um, once that you know that that the USDA itself was um, denying the existence of that tape. So 
Um, it's another part of this forgotten. It's another part of this forgotten history where we're in the late 20th century. Uh, the government wanted us to think this has always had been the way it was when it hadn't been, uh, and that there was um, definitely a period in in American history where hip was a productive member of society. And now here we are on the other side of that, making it a productive member of society again. That's right. And then after the war ended, essentially prohibition was put back in place. Um, and it's worth mentioning too, around in 1951 was the beginning of mandatory sentencing laws okay. um, that Reagan built on in the 80s. And from that point forward, um, as most of us have heard, um, those laws disproportionately affect um, minorities, and in particular, blacks and Latinos. So that's kind of the backdrop um, that I think we should all keep in mind as industries grow and new laws are being made and regulations and frameworks are being put in place to keep in mind this, um, this history in the backdrop. So, so I'm going to sort of transition into Jonathan and let Jonathan get in here. So as we get into sort of the second half of the 20th century, what's really interesting to me is that um, the activism for whole plant cannabis and hemp has largely existed on sort of separate tracks. Whole plant activists have largely left hemp activists alone because they didn't want to get signals crossed. Um, and so for a long time, uh, it, at least on the activist side, hemp and marijuana, uh, hemp and whole plant cannabis were, were perceived as, as, as different things. And Jonathan, can you talk about how, how that interact, interactivity at, you know, in D.C. has played out over the last uh, you know, X number of years? Sure. So thanks so much. Uh, it's an honor to, honor to be here to, to speak with everyone today. So my focus is uh, I actually started my legal career at the FDA, uh, U.S. Food and Drug Administration. So I came to cannabis somewhat accidentally, you know, federal safety and uh, efficacy studies and approvals from the FDA, and someone came to me a few years ago and said, can you help with a, a cannabis application? And I said, I have no idea what that means, but sure, uh, I'll, I'll figure it out. So, um, you know, became very immersed in, in this area, and I have a personal connection to it, which I'll, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, but on the direct question uh, about the difference between, and I'm going to use the words marijuana and hemp. I know marijuana is a pejorative term. Uh, I don't mean it to, you know, to be pejorative, but I'm going to use it because in, in order to understand the differences between what's federally illegal now and what is recently not federally illegal, uh, that's marijuana being federally illegal, hemp, as long as it comports with the definition of the Farm Bill, which I'll talk about, it's, they're from the same plant. It's cannabis sativa L. So, I speak at a lot of conferences, I meet with a lot of folks, I certainly have a lot of clients in the space. I always start any of these talks with, it's useful, and if I had a slide deck I would show you, but it's useful to think about this in a triangle. And the top of the triangle is cannabis sativa L. To the lower, to your right, is, uh, we can either call it, we, let's just say it's hemp. <coughs> hemp specifically bred to have high levels of CBD, low levels of THC. To the lower right, Marijuana, opposite, high levels of THC, low levels of CBD. Now, the plants themselves are different. You can tell the differences between the two of them, but they're still cannabis sativa L. It's the same plant genus. So until very recently, all of this was federally illegal. Uh, despite the history, despite the fact that hemp was an agricultural commodity, which is what I think a lot of people hope becomes again. And then, of course, folks hope that it's used for medicinal properties as well for cosmetic benefits and all the rest. But the way this regulation comes to play today is marijuana, still Schedule One, 
not recognized by the federal government, really it's DEA, for having any medicinal use. Uh, no medicinal use, high potential for abuse. That's essentially the definition of Schedule One. So what's interesting about that, right, is I'm sure many of you know, Epidiolex was approved last summer, which is the first true cannabis-derived drug. There was a synthetic form uh, uh, approved um, a couple years ago, I believe, or a year and a half ago. In any event, when any, anybody says that cannabis is, uh, excuse me, that marijuana is federally illegal, there's, there's really one exception to that, and that is an FDA-approved drug because DEA descheduled that. And then you have, you have hemp. And a lot of people thought, after the 2014 Farm Bill, that hemp was completely legal in all 50 states. So what I like to say to that is, while that's what some people interpreted it as, Congress sure spent a lot of time last year debating the, the Farm Bill and ultimately passing the Farm Bill. So I said, if it's already legal, you might want to tell Congress that it's already legal because they're spending a lot of time uh, decriminalizing this. So again, this is not how I want it to be, but as a lawyer, you know, the law and the facts matter very much so to me and to my clients, so it's important to get these things right. The point is, though, 2014, there was this farm bill. The, the, that's the short name that it goes by, but it's the Agriculture Improvements Act of 2014. That set up these state uh, pilot programs, and it was mostly for colleges and universities to grow and to study and figure out what, what can we do with this. Interestingly enough, I think a lot of people knew what we could already do with it, but you know, everyone has to convince themselves before they, before they get involved. Um, but what happened was there was some confusing language around uh, commercializing those products in the bill. And you saw, not to the extent you see it today, but you saw a lot of hemp-derived products on the marketplace, especially within the past year or two, pre-2018 Farm Bill. And clients would come to me and say, this is legal in all 50 states. We're shipping it to all 50 states. We're putting in food and drugs and dietary supplements, and isn't this great? And I said, uh, so I'm happy for you. I really hope your business is doing well, but I have to tell you, if we work together, I'm going to need to at least tell you where the pain points are in your process, and we'll try to sort through them. Long story short, Congress came along and said, there's confusion around whether it's only colleges and universities that can get involved in hemp. And so Congress finally, and there's a, the Kentucky connection is Mitch McConnell, who many would not associate with being pro-cannabis anything, uh, senior senator from Kentucky, pushed this pretty hard. And you know, the hemp industry, I would say, has, has Mitch McConnell to, to thank for getting this through Congress. Um, you know, on the point of, and I forget the name of the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Ainslinger. Ainslinger. So, um, not to get too political, but, you know, you thank Ainslinger for, you know, your involvement and other people's involvement and passion. I say the same thing about Jeff Sessions, which is, yeah. had Jeff Sessions not been as anti-cannabis as he was when he was Attorney General, you have never seen so much legislation introduced as when Jeff Sessions rescinded the Cole Memo. I'll talk about what the Cole Memo is if you don't know, but long story short, there are some interesting players in the history of cannabis, of hemp, of marijuana, who have motivated people to become active. I'm not suggesting that we're better off. Obviously, a lot of people have suffered because of that aggressive stance, and that's aggressive putting it lightly. My point is, there are interesting players throughout history that have motivated a lot of action and activism in the space. So it's just an interesting parallel 
of how we've come very far, but also not come very far at the same time. So I've, I've got a legal question for Jonathan, and then we're going to open it up to uh, Q&A for as long as, I don't, I'm not sure how long our panel lasts, but we're going to go until there's questions to, to, to you know, we're going we're gonna to answer questions when you got them, so be thinking of your questions. But my question to Jonathan is, uh, so the FDA approved a CBD-derived uh, drug last summer as a Schedule Five drug. And that was in the summer of 2018. Yep. And then in December of 2018, the Farm Bill passed that, that removed CBD and its extracts from the schedules completely. So is CBD a Schedule 5 drug or is it not scheduled? Great question. Epidiolex is a Schedule 5 drug. CBD, marijuana-derived CBD, is still, on paper, a Schedule 1 drug. Interestingly, within the last week, I spoke to the DEA on behalf of a client of mine and I spoke with somebody else who had a similar conversation with DEA. And here's what DEA said. I'm going to submit this in writing, and I'll be glad to publish it when I get it. The DEA's current position apparently is as long as it has 0.3% or less by dry weight, whether it's from marijuana or whether it's from hemp, the DEA considers that CBD to no longer be Schedule 1. So let me repeat that. Up until... I had this conversation with them myself. DEA had always told me, had always told clients, marijuana-derived CBD, illegal, Schedule 1. Hemp-derived CBD, as long as it has 0.3% or less by dry weight of THC, that is not Schedule 1, at least after the farm bill got passed. Mm -hmm. Stick with me. I know this is confusing and boring, but my point is, what I'm hearing the DEA say now is, if you've got CBD from any source... I say any source. CBD apparently can come from a lot of different things. I've had clients tell me it can come from tomatoes. Just, we'll look into that later. But <laughs> marijuana CBD, I hope it's true. Marijuana CBD and hemp CBD, the DEA is currently saying, as long as it has, as long as it's not above 0.3% by dry weight THC, you're good to go. Again, I'm going to get that in writing. But to get back to your point, the FDA a lot of people were surprised when Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who was unfortunately leaving the FDA, and it's unfortunate because I think he's the one that's actually pushing FDA to have a better CBD agenda than it's had in the past decade or longer. What they said in reaction to the Farm Bill was, hey, we heard this Farm Bill passed. That's, that's great. Uh, the Farm Bill does nothing to our authority, and if you add CBD to any FDA-regulated product, food, dietary supplements, cosmetics, that is a drug. And you cannot do that until you come to us with a drug approval application. So many of you in this room I know are in this space. I have a lot of clients who are in this space, dietary supplement companies, food companies. The reality is the FDA would tell you you cannot add CBD of any kind, marijuana or hemp, to foods or dietary supplements. That's the, the regulatory reality. The reality on the ground is it's happening every day. I've advised clients who are doing it and we've come to sign kind of an understanding of how you do that and mitigate risk. But from, an, from the FDA's perspective, and the FDA is the agency that regulates interstate food, beverage, drugs, dietary supplements, they would say all CBD is, is a drug ingredient. The FDA, interestingly, does not care whether it's Schedule 1 or not. That's not what FDA's position is based upon. And I think the FDA has taken some, I don't mean to defend my former employer, but I, on some unfair criticism about taking the position that it did. The FDA actually needs Congress to intervene and say that we can allow something that's been in a drug product to be in a food product. This whole argument, and then I'll shut up and I promise I will take questions, is 
the FDA has something called the exclusionary rule, where very simply, if something was a drug ingredient before it was a food ingredient, the FDA, you, you can't just go and put a drug ingredient in foods. I mean, that's like saying, do you want a controlled substance in your Cheerios? You might, but your kids, you probably don't want your kids to have Cheerios with drug ingredients in them. So what the FDA's statute, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which Ginny talked about, uh, it says that if something's been a drug or it's been studied as a drug or approved as a drug, you can't have it as a food ingredient. So what the FDA is looking at recently, uh, again, this was Commissioner Gottlieb's push, I think, before he announced he was resigning, was to have this hybrid approach, low CB CBD levels in foods and dietary supplements, high CBD levels in drugs like Epidiolex, GW Pharmaceuticals, product for Dravet syndrome and Linus Gusto syndrome. Whether that's a tenable framework, I don't know. Whether it disincentivizes the pharmaceutical industry, that's... Do you know the threshold on what that uh, high level, low level millig milligram is? So I don't, but look, you know, for those of you that know anything about Epidiolex, the amount that we're talking about is grams versus milligrams. So no one in this room, I hope, is putting the amount of pure, isolated, you know, isolate, really highly purified, refined CBD that, that Epidiolex has. I mean, even if you do, I'm not sure there's a safety concern, but just to separate yourselves out from a pharmaceutical company, I think you're probably going to be putting in less CBD. Also, your customers are probably looking for let's say 10 to 45 milligrams, not a gram, okay? So I don't know what that threshold is. Mm -hmm. We were supposed to have an FDA hearing about this in April. Gottlieb announced he's leaving. The senior working group at FDA who reports to Gottlieb, uh, I don't know what happened. Do you have any insight on what caused Gottlieb's departure? Seems like a yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know... I'm not withholding information. I mean, if I had something I couldn't publicly share, I wouldn't share it, but there's a couple things. Number one, people like Scott Gottlieb don't spend that much time in those positions, and there's a number of reasons. One, let's just call it what it is, money. You know, as FDA commissioner, I think his salary is, I don't know, like 160 or 70 grand. It's not a small amount of money, I'm not suggesting it is, but you know, this guy was working at New Enterprise Associates, he's a physician, uh, you know, he lives in Connecticut, so there's family reasons, there's money reasons. Uh, <laughs> my point is, no one stays in those positions for a very long time. The, the real kind of subtext is, he's been very aggressive on, on youth vaping, which he called an epidemic. And for those of you who have spent any time in and around high schools, you understand that it is an epidemic. Uh, these are addictive tobacco products. I'm not trying to be like a grandparent here, but I don't know, I don't want my kids using vaping products uh, until, uh, until they're of legal age, if, if ever. Um, he aggressively went after vaping products, and in a very interesting twist, the vaping industry just kind of hammered on him and said, what are you doing? This is not a youth problem, this is overblown. And now that he's leaving, they're like, this is great. Uh, all these rules are gonna go away. And then he ha has the last laugh because two days ago, he announced what I can only characterize as the most aggressive vaping position I've ever heard the agency talk about. So he's going out with a bang. But he took some criticism in the press from uh, conservative and libertarian members of Congress over his vaping stance. And I think he said, you know what, the hell with this, I don't need this. I can go and be with my family. I don't have to you know, not be with him 
six days of the week. And that was right after the, the conference of all the state ag, uh, agriculture commissioners were all in D.C. for a week with uh, USD Commissioner Purdue and Gottlieb talking about all these things. And then the next week, he, he announced his resignation. Yeah, so it, the timing is very interesting. Scott Gottlieb was on Capitol Hill. It was a week ago this past Wednesday. And in response to some questions from some House members who have uh, constituents who are in the hemp industry or in the CBD industry, they said, you know, what's going on? What's with your reaction statement to the Farm Bill? And he said what every other FDA lawyer that I know said. That statement's been the same since the 2014 Farm Bill, so that shouldn't be a surprise. However, what he said that was new was pretty significant. Number one, we're studying this issue hard, and I have a working group. No one knew that before that day, at least not publicly. Uh, number two, we are talking about this hybrid approach. Uh, number three, I am committed to doing this. We might issue a regulation to get it done, but as you, Congress, know, notice and comment rulemaking takes the FDA about two to four years. So if you want it quicker, delegate us different authority or do something to really push this. And they all said, that's great. And Gottlieb said, oh, and by the way, we're going to have an April public meeting about this, uh, kind of like USDA just did, although it was more focused on CBD and drug regulation and food regulation. And then Gottlieb, I think that next Monday, said he was resigning. Mm -hmm. So the timing's interesting. I don't have any kind of conspiracy theories about this. I do think he was uh, serious about it. He also might take action before he leaves, like he just did in the vaping space. But I think his departure is very unfortunate because there was finally momentum at FDA. And this is not, not that it's not an important issue to me or to you or m many of my clients, but this is not a priority public safety issue to FDA. It's going to be backburnered, I, I would imagine. And that's just my, that's my prediction. So that's the history of him from 1775 until the resignation of FDA Commissioner Gottlieb. <laughs> Now we're taking questions from folks here. So what, 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 what ground do we not cover that you guys want, want to hear us talk about? Yes, sir. Yeah, two things real quick. Is it a legal requirement to have a child food cap on a CBD oil? And then on a label perspective, uh, do you have to include keep out of reach of children and uh, the issues of pregnancy and nursing? I have no idea. I'm going to turn this over to Jonathan. So... The FDA has said you can't have CBD in a dietary supplement. I just said that, right? That being said, any of my clients who are selling these products are selling them as dietary supplements. How can that be? Am I a horrible lawyer? So what I've told clients is FDA says you can't do this. With that being said, as long as you're not making aggressive disease claims about your products, there's been very little enforcement action. You as a business make the own your own decision. I'm not telling you, and I'm not going to make that conclusion for you, but the way this has gone is a seemingly lower level of risk is to say full spectrum hemp extract, you know, and not calling out an aggressive amount of CBD. Then once you do that, what do you put on the label? Do you follow FDA's dietary supplement labeling guidelines when you know that they don't even think that this should be a dietary supplement? So a few things, because I just looked at a label for a client last night, so this is top of mind and a great question. The DSHEA statement, the, the statements have not been evaluated by the FDA, um, you know, not intended to treat or cure disease. I think most people are putting that on for two reasons. One, if FDA does view this as a supplement and an okay supplement, that's a requirement. You might say to yourself, why would you put that on there if it's not a supplement? Well, it's this chicken and egg thing. Do you want them to say it's an, uh, you know, an, a, a supplement that's not compliant? 
or it shouldn't be a supplement in the first place. It's a little bit of a hedge. The breastfeeding warning and the keep out of the reach of children, I mean, that's a product liability thing. I don't know, I'm not a scientist, I barely passed high school chemistry, which is, I'm amazed every day I'm an FDA lawyer. And I've gotten drug approvals approved by FDA before, so I think I just needed a reason to apply it. I, I wish my high school chemistry teacher could see me now. <laughs> I think those warnings are more product liability related, and that's why you're seeing it so often. Some, some states will require certain labeling, um, but I would be careful about adherence with state warning requirements because New York State, for example, says, yeah, you can sell CBD dietary supplements as long as you follow FDA's dietary supplement guidelines. Does that make a lot of sense when the FDA says you can't even put this in supplements at all? So long answer to your question, those warnings are for product liability reasons. A lot of people slap those warnings on because they see the bigger players in the space doing it and they go on Google image search and they see them. The thing I would say is, you know, don't make claims that you don't have substantiation for, okay? But as far as warnings are concerned, I think you're better off putting something that you think could affect someone who is pregnant or breastfeeding. And you certainly don't want children consuming this, at least not under a doctor supervision in a state, you know, CBD oil program. So. I personally am in favor of those statements. I don't think they're going to harm you in any way. And yeah, as far as childproof is concerned, states have some states have requirements. Uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commission has requirements for products like this, but again, because this is just newly federally legal, they haven't said anything about it yet. So yeah, I, I recommend childproofing. I recommend those warning statements. I recommend the DSHA statement. I recommend not making aggressive claims. I think, does that, does that help? Okay, great, next question. Next question. Questions from y'all. Questions. Yes, sir. Yeah, we, we all love our pets. We like our pets more than some of our relatives, right? So uh, I, if I had a dollar for every time someone in my office came to me and said, hey, I just ordered this CBD for my dog online, I'm so excited about it, and I, they, they're upset that I don't get as excited as they do, and I just say, you know, do you know where it's coming from? Uh, is it coming from another country that has a lot of lead in their products? Because that's where, unfortunately, for people in this space, reality, sourcing is a big deal. Pet, pet products are regulated by the FDA. Animal drugs are regulated by the FDA. I think enforcement is going to be a lot uh, lower in the pet space. Again, absent aggressive disease claims, but you know, if you're making a claim that, uh, you know, this is good for pain related to osteosarcoma, bone cancer in dogs, and it doesn't do that, uh, the FDA might come after that. So yeah, this is regulated in the pet space as well. They, food and feed and drugs are all regulated by the federal government. There's some breakdown between USDA and FDA, but um, the other thing, by the way, and I didn't even really talk about this is, you know, we talked about the FDA, talked about the farm bill, USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture, needs to issue regulations to certify all of these state hemp programs. Right now, we're in this gray area. Everyone's like, well, what do I do? And can I transport this across state lines? And I, look, I've heard it here today. I've heard other people say it. Yet, yeah, it's completely legal in all 50 states and to transport across in all 50 states. Try telling that to the truck driver who's locked up right now who was transporting CBD oil, okay? So I'm not suggesting that the hemp industry or the supplement industry won't win in court eventually. But some states don't like this, and we all have to admit that. I mean, the state that we're sitting in right now wasn't so hot on CBD as of 
a year ago. So yeah, keep your trucks out of Oklahoma and Idaho. Yeah, there's a circuit split, which is when two state courts um, or two courts disagree on something. Some people think it's going to go to the Supreme Court. I don't think it's going to be granted cert, but that's that's another story. My point is, just because this is no longer federally illegal hemp, I mean. That doesn't mean you can do anything you want with it and you have free passage. That's what the law maybe says, say for the adding it to FDA regulated products. But before someone tells you that this is good to go and you can do anything you want with it in all 50 states, take it with a grain of salt. If you don't talk to me, talk to somebody else uh, or don't talk to an attorney at all. I mean, do your own research. But anybody who has Google News alerts for all these topics like I do, I mean, every morning I read every single story about enforcement action in this space. Again, not what I want to be happening, but it's the reality of it. And if I have a truck, a client's truck going from Oregon down to Florida, and they're going through some of those states that don't like this product, do you really think a state trooper is gonna take the time to delineate between what's marijuana-derived or hemp-derived CBD oil? I don't think so. So presuming that we're on an hour schedule for the, for the, uh, for the panel, we got room for maybe one more question, then we're gonna do final thoughts from our panelists. Uh, up front, yes, ma'am. Um, since this is a, about hemp history, I'm curious if you guys have any knowledge whether or not the history in, in the history of hemp use has it been used medicinally? Because as far as I know and what I've researched, it's the marijuana, the female version that's used medicinally. So the fact that all of these products are, you know, even being looked at by the FDA that are hemp oil, you know, there's like online, there's a So let me, let me take a stab at that. So you're absolutely right. Historically, especially in Kentucky, hemp is grown as a fiber. It's a fiber crop. And simultaneous to that, in the 19th century, there is medical cannabis, and that is cannabis indica that is being grown, unfertilized female flower for the cannabinoids that is totally distinct from the hemp. So now we're in a space where uh, we're redefining these words sort of like week by week. Uh, what is cannabis? What is hemp? And right now, the only distinction for what makes hemp hemp is a THC level of below the 0.3. So when we're talking about uh, hemp production, hemp-derived CBD in a state like Kentucky, we're talking about farmers growing acres of unfertilized female flower. That's essentially whole plant cannabis or marijuana, just with a rock-bottom THC level. And so now that's the, 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 the dividing line between what constitutes hemp and what constitutes cannabis. But it's completely different from the historical understanding of what used to grow in Kentucky legally, which was for fiber. You know, they're actually like taking the marijuana genetics and trying to drive the THC down and create this like plant that's a new version almost. But hemp already exists and hemp already provides everything that it needs to provide as an industrial textile and a food resource. Well, there's a creation of a whole, a whole new class of strains of cannabis, but I don't know that that would be necessarily a bad thing. It's just opening up a new door for a different variety of cannabis to. to I guess we'll see over time, huh? I guess we'll see over time. The, the other thing, and. and it's a convenient, the reason that you see so much hemp-derived CBD, despite what I said about FDA not caring about its Schedule One status, it's easier to get. It's, it, there are less legal questions than there were before. Absolutely. 
many of my clients, one of my first clients in this space, epileptic, you know, used to take heavy seizure meds, was, you know, uh, you know, just, he said, I was a mummy. I, I, you know, I had no, I didn't have my wits about me. And he started, he said, I abused marijuana. I, I abused cannabis, but I never had a seizure again. And I figured out how to titrate it. He and other people have told me and scientists have told me the medicinal properties, a lot of them come from the THC. There's a lot that do come from the CBD, but people are using CBD because that's what's available and because there are less restrictions. Uh, I'm not saying there's not, look, GW Pharmaceuticals got a product through the FDA for two very horrible, horrible seizure disorders. My personal connection that I meant to say earlier was I experienced my best friend's son having his very first seizure in front of me and he was on the Epidiolex trial. So that's when I got super passionate about this space. My point is that you see a lot of the claims being made because those are the products that are available mainstream. It, could it be that a lot of the medicine is from the CBD? It could be, but you know, the land race and the original genetics, the non-manipulated, non-hybrid stuff, that's what people really want to study and get at, but because of the federal restrictions, it's been very, very difficult. So that's really like what we all as advocates must push for, is our government starting to take a deeper look at the biology of this plant and actually regulating what portion of this plant should be used for health and you know, approved by the FDA and what portion of this plant should be textile and food. Because it's, uh, at, for me, I, I wasn't working with the research facility for five years. Um, and yeah, we had, you know, over 200 patients that we cured from cancer. We had like 130 epilepsy children and adults that we brought through to recovery. It was amazing. The one-to-one -one ratio is absolutely 100% essential for the body to take, that to take that CBD and actually activate it. The THC, the CBN, the CBG, all of those are so important. So the entourage effect is vastly important when you're talking about topical use or you're talking about oral use, you know, when you're talking about health and beauty aids, that one-to-one -one ratio is so important. So I you know, as a very passionate advocate myself for many years and, you know, w working for a research facility and watching the whole plant extract be fully effective um, for patients, I strongly, like, advise people, don't, don't go pay these, like, astronomic prices for products that are, you know, at your Rite Aid or your Walgreens because they're not actually the same medicinal value as, you know, a state where you can buy recreational medicinal products, so. That's all I wanted to Thank say. You. <laughs> Thank you. So, so we're, we're, we're about out of time, so we're going to go and do final thoughts from our panelists, starting with Brandon Go. Sure. Final thoughts. Well, truly appreciate all of your time, energy, and attention today. I truly, it's my first time in Indianapolis, so I'm very humbled and honored to be here speaking in front of all of you from Seattle, Washington, and just very much excited to see how this plan is going to change everyone's lives for the better, guaranteed. Even if you're not using it, you're definitely going to benefit it economically. Thanks, Brandon. Jenny? Sure. Um, so I'm an attorney um, like Jonathan. I think my last, my, I'll part you with uh, just proceed cautiously. And in the interim in between when the 2018 Farm Bill is fully implemented, like Jonathan mentioned, um, there are certain states and jurisdictions that are we're still under the 2014 farm bill which was never fully sort of um, sussed out on the meaning and it was intended for research purposes and also although the fda has 
not um, enforced and CBD products are prevalent, there is the ability more than warning letters uh, for enforcement. So under FDCA, the Drug and Cosmetics Act, um, you know, when the policies are sorted out and rules are enforced, um, beyond warning letters, uh, products can be seized. There's civil penalties. There's, there are criminal penalties, misdemeanors and felonies, and so it can ratchet up. And so it's not just um, a self-regulated, we're gonna industry and we're gonna get some warning letters and pay a fine. Um, there's a whole spectrum of enforcement that's possible. Yikes. So proceed cautiously. Yikes, Jonathan, yeah, can, you scare I, us? can you scare us more than that? <laughs> no, uh, I mean, I, I could. Um, you know, a couple, a couple things. Number one, thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. You know, I think this is a really fascinating time to be in this space, whether you're new, whether you've been in the space for a while and you're kind of seeing the, you know, the revolution, so to speak. Um, you know, one thing that I want to say about CBD versus THC, I don't think we should squander the opportunity to use CBD, which is now enjoying this quasi-legal status or legal status. Uh, you know, you can get a lot of mileage out of, out of CBD. I mean, look, this is a CBD expo. I think there's a lot of pr good qualities and properties about CBD, but using it and not saying that's enough and, and getting tired and saying, oh, well, we've got CBD out there, so that's great. You know, it's pushing and advocating and really getting our, our government to rethink these things. Um, I know it's funny to hear an attorney talk is like a revolutionary, but here we are. Um, so that's, that's number one. Number two, there are penalties. And by the way, the FDA hasn't taken enforcement action in the past unless you're making these aggressive disease claims. However, the market also wasn't really open until December of last year. So now that arguably 50% more of the market is open, the FDA is being painted into a corner. And now that the DEA is not really going to be involved as long as you can prove that you have under that threshold, what does the FDA have to do? Also, there's a pharmaceutical product out there that looks a lot like some of the products that people in this room are selling. And do they have incentive to go after other players in the space who have even you know, uh, an iota of what they have or make claims like they have. I hope none of you are making seizure claims with your products absent uh, an FDA approval. But, you know, the, I guess the last thing I'll say is process matters, both from the government side and from your company side. Do not trust if someone says to you, this is definitely from hemp and it's definitely from a US-based farm. You need certificates of analysis. You need them attached to bills of lading. You need to make sure that every state you're going through is okay with this, or you need to be okay with losing your entire truckload and your driver possibly going to jail. So before you kind of pass the buck onto other people, do this smartly, consult with somebody, whether it's an attorney or someone in your company who knows this stuff, I would absolutely do it. Uh, to end on a positive note, I would say we're in a much better spot than we were in a year ago from Indiana's perspective, from the federal perspective. This is moving. The government is interested in having the conversation. And the fact that we have a CBD-based drug, although it's a drug and not a supplement or a consumer product, that's the start of things. We all know our government is a big creaky ship and moves slowly, but we're a lot farther along than we were even three months ago. So, you know, be thankful for that and let's, let's continue to work at it. Great. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.